Section 53 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 53, Chapter 22, Part 3. The scene which ensues resembles more the fiction of a poem or romance than an event in true history. The prodigious popularity of Warwick, the zeal of the Lancastrian party, the spirit of the discontent with which many were infected, and the general instability of the English nation, occasioned by the late frequent revolutions, drew such multitudes to his standard that in a very few days his army amounted to sixty thousand men and was continually increasing edward hastened southwards to encounter him and the two armies approached each other near nottingham where a decisive action was every hour expected the rapidity of warwick's progress had incapacitated the duke of clarence from executing his plan of treachery and the marquis of montague had here the opportunity of striking the first blow he communicated the design to his adherents who promised him their concurrence they took to arms in the night-time and hastened with loud acclamation to edward's quarters the king was alarmed at the noise and starting from bed heard the cry of war usually employed by the lancastrian party Lord Hastings, his chamberlain, informed him of the danger, and urged him to make his escape by speedy flight from an army where he had so many concealed enemies, and where few seemed zealously attached to his service. He had just time to get on horseback, and to hurry with a small retinue to Lyne in Norfolk, where he luckily found some ships ready, on board of which he instantly embarked. And after this manner the Earl of Warwick, in no longer space than eleven days after his first landing was left entire master of the kingdom but edward's danger did not end with his embarkation the easterlings or hans towns were then at war both with france and england and some ships of these people hovering on the english coast espied the king's vessels and gave chase to them nor was it without extreme difficulty that he made his escape into the port of alkmaer in holland he had fled from England with such precipitation that he had carried nothing of value along with him, and the only reward which he could bestow on the captain of the vessel that brought him over was a robe lined with sables, promising him an ample recompense if fortune should ever become more propitious to him. It is not likely that Edward could be very fond of presenting himself in this lamentable plight before the Duke of Burgundy and that having so suddenly, after mighty vaunts, lost all his footing in his own kingdom, he could be insensible to the ridicule which must attend him in the eyes of that prince. The duke, on his part, was no less embarrassed how he should receive the dethroned monarch, as he had ever borne a greater affection to the house of Lancaster than to that of York, nothing but political views had engaged him to contract an alliance with the latter, and he foresaw, that probably the revolution in England would now turn this alliance against him, and render the reigning family his implacable and jealous enemy. For this reason, when the first rumor of that event reached him, attended with the circumstance of Edward's death, he seemed rather pleased with the catastrophe, 
and it was no agreeable disappointment to find that he must either undergo the burden of supporting an exiled prince or the dishonor of abandoning so near a relation he began already to say that his connections were with the kingdom of england not with the king and it was indifferent to him whether the name of edward or that of henry were employed in the articles of treaty these sentiments were continually strengthened by the subsequent events valclair the deputy governor of calais though he had been confirmed in his command by edward and had even received a pension from the duke of burgundy on account of his fidelity to the crown no sooner saw his old master warwick reinstated in authority than he declared for him and with great demonstrations of zeal and attachments put the whole garrison in his livery and the intelligence which the duke received every day from england seemed to promise an entire and full settlement in the family of lancaster immediately after edward's flight had left the kingdom at warwick's disposal that nobleman hastened to london and taking henry from his confinement in the tower into which he himself had been the chief cause of throwing him he proclaimed him king with great solemnity a parliament was summoned in the name of that prince to meet at westminster and as this assembly could pretend to no liberty while surrounded by such enraged and insolent victors governed by such an impetuous spirit as warwick their votes were entirely dictated by the ruling faction the treaty with margaret was here fully executed henry was recognized as lawful king but his incapacity for government being avowed the regency was entrusted to warwick and clarence till the majority of prince edward and in default of that prince's issue clarence was declared successor to the crown the usual business also of reversals went on without opposition every statute made during the reign of edward was repealed that prince was declared to be a usurper he and his adherents were attained and in particular richard duke of gloucester his younger brother all the attainders of the lancastrians the dukes of somerset and exeter the earls of richmond pembroke oxford and ormond were reversed and every one was restored who had lost either honors or fortunes by his former adherence to the cause of henry the ruling party were more sparing in their executions than was usual after any revolution during those violent times the only victim of distinction was john tibbetet earl of worcester this accomplished person born in an age and nation where nobility valued themselves on ignorance as their privilege and left learning to monks and schoolmasters for whom indeed the spurious erudition that prevailed was best fitted had been struck with the first rays of true science which began to penetrate from the south and had been zealous by his exhortation and example to propagate the love of letters among his unpolished countrymen it is pretended that knowledge had not produced on this nobleman himself the effect which naturally attends it of humanizing the temper and softening the heart and that he had enraged the lancastrians against him by the severities which he exercised upon them during the prevalence of his own party he endeavored to conceal himself after the flight of edward but was caught on the top of a tree in the forest of weybridge was conducted to london tried before the earl of oxford condemned and executed all the considerable yorkists either fled beyond sea or took shelter in sanctuaries where the ecclesiastical privileges afforded them protection and among the rest edward's queen who was there delivered of a son called by his father's name queen margaret 
the other rival queen, had not yet appeared in England, but on receiving intelligence of Warwick's success was preparing with Prince Edward for her journey. All the banished Lancastrians flocked to her, and among the rest, son of the duke beheaded after the Battle of Hexham. This nobleman, who had long been regarded as the head of the party, had fled into the low countries on the discomfiture of his friends, and as he concealed his name and quality, he had there languished in extreme indigence. Philip de Comines tells us that he himself saw him, as well as the Duke of Exeter, in a condition no better than that of a common beggar. Till being discovered by Philip, Duke of Burgundy, they had no small pensions allotted them, and were living in silence and obscurity when the success of their party called them from their retreat. But both Somerset and Margaret were detained by contrary winds from reaching England, till a new revolution in that kingdom, no less sudden and surprising than the former, threw them into greater misery than that from which they had just emerged. Though the Duke of Burgundy, by neglecting Edward and paying court to the established government, had endeavored to conciliate the friendship of the Lancastrians, he found that he had not succeeded to his wish, and the connections between the King of France and the Earl of Warwick still held him in great anxiety. This nobleman, too hastily regarding Charles as a determined enemy, had sent over to Calais a body of four thousand men, who made inroads into the Low Countries, and the Duke of Burgundy saw himself in danger of being overwhelmed by the united arms of England and France. He resolved, therefore, to grant some assistance to his brother-in-law, but in such a covert manner as should give the least offence possible to the English government. He equipped four large vessels, in the name of some private merchants, at Tavir, in Zealand, and causing fourteen ships to be secretly hired from the Easterlings, he delivered this small squadron to Edward, who, receiving also a sum of money from the Duke, immediately set sail for England. No sooner was Charles informed of his departure than he issued a proclamation inhibiting all his subjects from giving him countenance or assistance an artifice which could not deceive the Earl of Warwick, but which might serve as a decent pretense, if that nobleman were so disposed, for maintaining friendship with the Duke of Burgundy. Edward, impatient to take revenge on his enemies and to recover his lost authority, made an attempt to land with his forces, which exceeded not two thousand men on the coast of Norfolk, but being there repulsed, he sailed northwards and disembarked in Ravenspur in Yorkshire. Finding that the new magistrates, who had been appointed by the Earl of Warwick, kept the people everywhere from joining him, he pretended, and even made an oath, that he came not to challenge the crown, but only the inheritance of the House of York, which of right belonged to him, and that he did not intend to disturb the peace of the kingdom. His partisans every moment flocked to his standard. He was admitted into the city of York, and he was soon in such a situation as gave him hopes of succeeding in all his claims and pretensions. The Marquis of Montague commanded in the northern counties, but from some mysterious reasons which, as well as many other important transactions in that age, no historian has cleared up, he totally neglected the beginnings of an insurrection which he ought to have esteemed so formidable. Warwick assembled an army at Leicester, with an intention of meeting and giving battle to the enemy, but Edward, by taking another road, passed him unmolested, and presented himself before the gates of London. Had he here been refused admittance, he was totally undone, 
but there were many reasons which inclined the citizens to favor him. His numerous friends, issuing from their sanctuaries, were active in his cause. Many rich merchants, who had formerly lent him money, saw no other chance for their payment but his restoration. The city dames, who had been liberal of favors to him, and who still retained an affection for this young and gallant prince, swayed their husbands and friends in his favor. And above all, the Archbishop of York, Warwick's brother, to whom the care of the city was committed, had secretly, from unknown reasons, entered into correspondence with him, and he facilitated Edward's admission into London. The most likely cause which can be assigned those multiplied infidelities, even in the family of Neville itself, is the spirit of faction, which, when it becomes inveterate, it is very difficult for any man to entirely shake off. The persons who had long distinguished themselves in the York party were unable to act with zeal and cordiality for the support of the Lancastrians, and they were inclined, by the prospect of favor or accommodation offered them by Edward, to return to their ancient connections. However this may be, Edward's entrance into London made him master not only of that rich and powerful city, but also of the person of Henry, who, destined to be the perpetual sport of fortune, thus fell again into the hands of his enemies. It appears not that Warwick, during his short administration, which had continued only six months, had been guilty of any unpopular act, or had anywise deserved to lose that general favor with which he had so lately overwhelmed Edward. But this prince, who was formerly on the defensive, was now the aggressor, and having overcome the difficulties which always attend the beginnings of an insurrection, possessed many advantages above his enemy. His partisans were actuated by that zeal and courage which the notion of an attack inspires. His opponents were intimidated for a like reason. Everyone who had been disappointed in the hopes which he had entertained from Warwick's elevation either became a cool friend or an open enemy to that nobleman, and each malcontent, from whatever cause, proved an accession to Edward's army. The king, therefore, found himself in a condition to face the Earl of Warwick, who, being reinforced by his son-in-law, the Duke of Clarence, and his brother, the Marquis of Montague, took post at Barnet, in the neighborhood of London. The arrival of Queen Margaret was every day expected, who would have drawn together all the genuine Lancastrians, and have brought a great accession to Warwick's forces. But this very consideration proved a motive to the Earl rather to hurry on a decisive action than to share the victory with rivals and ancient enemies who, he foresaw, would in case of success claim the chief merit in the enterprise. But while his jealousy was always directed towards that side, he overlooked the dangerous infidelity of friends, who lay the nearest to his bosom. His brother Montague, who had lately temporized, seems now to have remained sincerely attached to the interests of his family. But his son-in-law, though bound to him by every tie of honor and gratitude, though he shared the power of the regency, though he had been invested by Warwick in all the honors and patrimony of the House of York, resolved to fulfill the secret engagements which he had formerly taken with his brother, and to support the interests of his own family. He deserted the king in the night-time, and carried over a body of twelve thousand men along with him. Warwick was now too far advanced to retreat and as he rejected with disdain all terms of peace offered him by edward and clarence he was obliged to hazard a general engagement 
the battle was fought with obstinacy on both sides the two armies in imitation of their leaders displayed uncommon valor and the victory remained long undecided between them but an accident threw the balance to the side of the yorkists edward's cognizance was a sun that of warwick a star with rays and the mistiness of the morning rendering it difficult to distinguish them the earl of oxford who fought on the side of the lancastrians was by mistake attacked by his friends and chased off the field of battle warwick contrary to his more usual practice engaged that day on foot resolving to show his army that he meant to share every fortune with them and he was slain in the thickest of the engagement his brother underwent the same fate and as edward had issued orders not to give any quarter a great and undistinguished slaughter was made in the pursuit there fell about one thousand five hundred on the side of the victors the same day on which this decisive battle was fought queen margaret and her son now about eighteen years of age and a young prince of great hopes landed at weymouth supported by a small body of french forces when this princess received intelligence of her husband's captivity and of the defeat and death of the earl of warwick her courage which had supported her under so many disastrous events here quite left her and she immediately foresaw all the dismal consequences of this calamity at first she took sanctuary in the abbey of bulow but being encouraged by the appearance of tudor earl of pembroke and courtney earl of devonshire of the lords of wenlock and st john with other men of rank who exhorted her still to hope for success she resumed her former spirit and determined to defend to the utmost the ruins of her fallen fortunes she advanced through the counties of devon somerset and gloucester increasing her army on each day's march but was at last overtaken by the rapid and expeditious edward at tewkesbury on the banks of the severn the lancastrians were here totally defeated the earl of devonshire and lord wenlock were killed in the field the duke of somerset and about twenty other persons of distinction having taken shelter in a church were surrounded dragged out and immediately beheaded about three thousand of their side fell in battle and the army was entirely dispersed queen margaret and her son were taken prisoners and brought to the king who asked the prince after an insulting manner how he dared to invade his dominions the young prince more mindful of his high birth than of his present fortune replied that he came thither to claim his just inheritance the ungenerous edward insensible to pity struck him on the face with his gauntlet and the dukes of clarence and gloucester lord hastings and sir thomas gray taking the blow as a signal for further violence hurried the prince into the next apartment and there dispatched him with their daggers margaret was thrown into the tower king henry expired in that confinement a few days after the battle of tewkesbury but whether he died a natural or violent death is uncertain it is pretended and was generally believed that the duke of gloucester killed him with his own hands but the universal odium which that prince had incurred inclined perhaps the nation to aggravate his crimes without any sufficient authority it is certain however that henry's death was sudden and though he labored under an ill state of health this circumstance joined to the general manners of the age gave a natural ground of suspicion which was rather increased than diminished by the exposing of his body to public view that precaution served only to recall many similar instances in english history 
and to suggest the comparison all the hopes of the house of lancaster seemed now to be utterly extinguished every legitimate prince of that family was dead almost every great leader of the party had perished in battle or on the scaffold the earl of pembroke who was levying forces in wales disbanded his army when he received intelligence of the battle of tewkesbury and he fled into brittany with his nephew the young earl of richmond the bastard of falconberg who had levied some forces and had advanced to london during edward's absence was repulsed his men deserted him he was taken prisoner and immediately executed and peace being now fully restored to the nation a parliament was summoned which ratified as usual all the acts of the victor and recognized his legal authority but this prince who had been so firm and active and intrepid during the course of adversity was still unable to resist the allurements of a prosperous fortune and he wholly devoted himself as before to pleasure and amusement after he became entirely master of his kingdom and had no longer any enemy who could give him anxiety or alarm he recovered however by this gay and inoffensive course of life and by his easy familiar manners that popularity which it is natural to imagine he had lost by the repeated cruelties exercised upon his enemies and the example also of his jovial festivity served to abate the former acrimony of faction among his subjects and to restore the social disposition which had been so long interrupted between the opposite parties all men seemed to be fully satisfied with the present government and the memory of past calamities served only to impress the people more strongly with the sense of their allegiance and with the resolution of never incurring any more the hazard of renewing such direful scenes but while the king was thus indulging himself in pleasure he was roused from his lethargy by a prospect of foreign conquests which it is probable his desire of popularity more than the spirit of ambition had made him covet though he deemed himself little beholden to the duke of burgundy for the reception which that prince had given him during his exile the political interests of their states maintained still a close connection between them and they agreed to unite their arms in making a powerful invasion on france a league was formed in which edward stipulated to pass the seas with an army exceeding ten thousand men and to invade the french territories charles promised to join him with all his forces the king was to challenge the crown of france and to obtain at least the provinces of normandy and guienne the duke was to acquire champagne and some other territories and to free all his dominions from the burden of homage to the crown of france and neither party was to make peace without the consent of the other they were the more encouraged to hope for success from this league as the count of st paul constable of france who was master of st quentin and other towns of somme had secretly promised to join them and there were also hopes of engaging the duke of brittany to enter their confederacy end of section fifty three chapter twenty two part three recording by robert hoffman